Amen. Well, we'll go ahead and dismiss the children this morning to Kids Church. As the kids are being dismissed to Kids Church, uh, we want to take just a few moments as they're being dismissed and uh, recognize our veterans. Uh, today is Veterans Day, uh, and so it is so easy. Uh, it's so easy just to take for granted uh, the service that has been done uh, by our military men and women uh, on our behalf to purchase for us or to, to guarantee us the freedoms that we enjoy. Uh, and we want to take this opportunity just, if for a brief moment, uh, to thank those who've served uh, in our military. Uh, so I'd like, if, if you have someone, or I'm sorry, if you have served in, in any branch of the military or auxiliary, uh, if you would stand at this time, we want to take just a few moments and recognize you. If you've served in any branch of the service, uh, I know that's not all of them. I know that's not all of them. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your service. Uh, thank you for your faithful service. Thank you for your sacrifices of your time. Uh, your uh, and your faithful service. Uh, and so this week, uh, this day, as you remember those who've served, uh, there are many of those who are uh, family members of those who've served, uh, or you will run into someone who have served in the military. Uh, take a moment and thank them for their service uh, to this country. Uh, we indeed are a blessed country, and we are blessed uh, not only because of the favor and the providence of our Lord, but we're blessed because of the sacrifices of so many. And so take this opportunity to thank those. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 20 as we continue to walk through uh, the, the life and the ministry and the service of David. Uh, we, are in, we are entering... The last leg of this journey, we have been walking through the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel uh, for some time. Uh, and if you look, if you cheat, if you read ahead, you know that there's only a few verses or a few chapters left. So we're coming to the end of this, of this voyage. And so as we come to the end of this journey, uh, we are going to attempt to do our very best to wrap it up, to put a bow on it. Uh, and so, so stay with us over the next few weeks. We're hoping to be done uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, so stay with us as we continue to look at God's providence uh, through the Davidic kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 20, we look at yet another revolution. Uh, this has become a redundant theme in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. But we're going to look at this. Uh, I'm only going to read a few verses this morning, but I want to encourage you to read all of 2 Samuel chapter 20 because it will give you a, a, a more complete picture of what we're looking at and of the text this morning. So 2 Samuel chapter 20, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, so follow with me if you will. Now, a worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Bechri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. And every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel went and withdrew from following David, and they followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. 
So the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan, even to Jerusalem. And then David came to his house in Jerusalem. And the king took ten, the ten women, the concubines whom he had left to keep the house, and placed them under guard, provided for them with sustenance, but he did not go into them since they were shut up. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living as widows. Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Call out the men of Judah. Call out the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which he had appointed. Skip down to verse 10. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand. So he struck him in the belly and with it poured out his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Verse 21. Such is not the case, but a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri, by name has lifted up his hand against the king David. Only hand him over and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown, over, thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman wisely came to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it over the head of Joab to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and so they were dispersed from the city, each to his tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. Let's pray. God, as we see the continued rebellion and the heart of rebellion against the king, Lord, may we be aware of our own rebellious heart. Lord, may this morning, may your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts through your word. May we hear not the words of a preacher, but may we hear the word of God. May you convict us of sin. May you bring us into obedience. And Lord, may you lift high the name of Jesus. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As a parent, I know many of you can appreciate and identify with the reality that you correct your children over the same things over and over and over and over again. Am I right? I have three beautiful children who are uh, the, the, the light of my life. Yet I have one child who has an aversion to footwear. And and it does not matter how many times we tell him, Nicholas, put on your shoes. Nicholas, put on your shoes. We were we I took Nicholas camping this weekend, and and while we were camping, uh, you know, it's 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 rainy and it's muddy and it's nasty. And we're being very careful to, to, you know, wear our boots and, and not get mud inside, uh, inside the camp. Uh, and, and so we're, we're taking painstaking efforts to, to keep the, the, the campsite clean and keep it without mud. And so we're, you know, before you come in, you have to take off your boots. And as soon as you go out, you have to put your boots on because it's wet and it's muddy and it's nasty. And so, so, First thing this morning, or I'm sorry, first thing yesterday morning, uh, the sun is out, it's shining, and so in his mind, it's dry out. 
So I don't need to put on my boots anymore. So, so there he goes running through the woods with nothing but his socks on. And he comes back and his socks are filthy and muddy and wet. And what does he do? He brings it right inside the camp and, 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 and gets mud everywhere. And this would be a typical nine-year-old problem, right? But the thing that makes it most frustrating is I probably told him at least 850 times, put your shoes on. Before you go outside, put your shoes on. We tell him at home, before you go outside, put your shoes on. He runs through the, uh, he, he runs through the yard. He runs through the, 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 the driveway without his shoes on. We've now gotten to the point where whenever we have to buy him socks, we take it out of his piggy bank. Because he goes through socks over and over and over again because he never wears his shoes. And, and it's easy for, for, for me as a dad to, to sit here and fuss and gripe and complain because he never wears his shoes and he's continually repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. And then I look at my own life and I see my own rebellious heart and I see that time and time again I repeat the same mistakes. I don't heed the warning of my heavenly father. I don't heed the word of God. And if I look back at my life and look back at, at the, the, the same habitual pattern of sin that, that plagued me when I was, when I was 16, 17, 18 years old is the same habitual pattern that plagued me in my twenties and my thirties. And now as I get closer and closer to 40, those same habitual patterns Plague us. Why? Because that such is the human nature. We have a tendency to repeat the same pattern of sin over and over and over again. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 11 says it like this. It says, as a fool, I'm sorry, as a dog returns to his vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. And we find ourselves over and over and over again repeating the same mistakes. This tells us that Satan does not need creativity. He doesn't need to, to reinvent uh, temptation and reinvent sin to entice us. He simply needs to, to tempt us and to entice us with the same thing he's been tempting us with from the very beginning of time. Because we, the human condition, is such that we repeat our mistakes over and over and over again. And as we look at this passage, for the reader, it becomes redundant. Didn't we just have a, a revolution? Didn't Absalom just try this? Didn't Saul just try this? Didn't, isn't this a, a redundant pattern that there is this revolution, that there is this attempt to, to overthrow and to, to not submit ourselves unto the, the covenant ordained king? Yes. And so why does Sheba think that he is going to be any different? Because such is the rebellious heart of the human condition. I want us to look at the text now. As we get into the text, the overall principle and the overall theme is that there is, there is redundancy and a continual rebellious heart against the covenant king. But as we look at the text, it's interesting that the text begins with a reference to the ten concubines that David left. 
If we remember, if we remember as David was fleeing Jerusalem, running from Absalom, he left 10 concubines there to, to take care of his household, to take care of uh, uh, the empire, I'm sorry, the, the castle, his home there. He said, take care. And while he was away, Absalom went in to his house on the roof and raped and violated these women in the full spectrum and the full vision of all of Israel. Chapter 20 begins with a reference to these women. And I want us to look and notice what it says. David came to his house in Jerusalem, and the king took these ten women, concubines whom he had left to keep the house, placed them under guard, provided for them with sustenance. But he did not go into them. They were shut up until the days of their death, living as widows. This tells us that David cared for them. He provided for them. He made sure that they were, uh, that they were fed and clothed and had shelter. But they were sentenced, for lack of a better term, to a, a life of joyless existence. And this is a very sad commentary on the effects and the, the way that sin permeates and affects others. These women were victims. They did nothing to, to subject themselves to the abuse and the violation and the ultimate life of joyless existence. This ought to be a sobering reality to us, reminding us that our sin, that your sin, not only affects you, but it affects all of those who are around you. And there is a real reality there is a, a sad reality that, that the sin that affects others is oftentimes irreversible. Scores of God's people have known the pain of having their lives completely destroyed by the sin of someone else. There are countless husbands, wives, children, parents, who have seen the lingering effects of sin because of the broken world that we have lived in. How many parents have buried children because of addiction? How many husbands, wives, have suffered the loss because of infidelity, immorality? How many faithful believers have suffered at the hands of a tyrannical government because they will have they will will not bow the knee to king jesus how many countless martyrs have paid for their faith in blood because of the sin of someone else it's not fair it's not equitable 
but it is the effects of sin. It's the cruel reality and the sad reality of a broken world. There is no, but it all ends happily. This is the effects of sin. And I believe that the text begins this passage reminding us of the judgment of God that was pronounced to David after his sin with Bathsheba. The sword will never leave your household. What you have done in private, God will do in public. This ought to This ought to be a sobering reminder for us. Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Let's get into the the, the text itself. I want to summarize for you what takes place uh, in chapter 20. So, the kingdom is divided. Absalom's revolt is put down. Joab kills Absalom. David comes back. The, the, the kingdom is, is once again under the reign of King, of, of King David, of the covenant king. And as the kingdom is once again put under the reign of the covenant king, it doesn't take long for the people of Israel to begin to follow this man named Sheba, who the scripture tells us is a bad guy. Plain and simple. Uh, chapter 20 starts out, there's this bad guy named Sheba and he takes all of the people of Israel and they follow after him and they say, we want to have nothing to do with David. And the only thing, the only people that are there still following David are the people of Judah. Now, just for a sake of simplicity, I want us to understand that this will be for the rest of the, the, kingdom, the rest of the monarchy of Israel, there will be a division for the people of Israel. There will be Israel, which is the northern kingdoms, and there will be Judah, which is the southern kingdom. That will be historically and for for the sake of our uh, narrative, that will be how Israel will be divided for the rest of the monarchy, even under David and Solomon and all of the first kings and second kings. That will be how Israel is divided, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Even during the exile, that will be how Israel is divided. The northern kingdom falls first to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, will fall second to the Babylonians. And so this will be a continuing theme that there's division amongst the people of Israel. The northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah. So as you read this, that that is what we will see. The northern kingdom, Israel, follows after this bad guy, Sheba. And the southern kingdom, Judah, follows after David. And so David has demoted Joab. Remember, Joab was the guy who was the commander of David's army. And uh, David told Joab, he told his people, he said, don't kill Absalom, uh, bring him to me, put down the rebellion, but bring Absalom to me. Absalom is my son. I love him, even though he's he's done that which is evil. He's rebelled against me. I still love him. He's my son. Don't kill Absalom. Well, whenever Joab killed Absalom, The king demoted him and he appointed Amasa as the commander of his army. And so Amasa goes out and he petitions all the people of Judah. He says, we have to go and put down this rebellion. And so they go and they amass all the people. Well, Amasa's late. He shows up to the party late. When he shows up to the party late, Joab takes Amasa and deceives him. He leans in for a kiss. 
He says, Amasa, my friend, my brother, come greet your brother with a fellow kiss. And as he leans in with a kiss, he takes his left hand and he guts him and he kills him. And he says, you are no longer the commander of David's army. I am going to resume my, I'm going to reclaim my role as the commander of David's army. And so Joab takes the army under his control. He goes and he pursues Sheba. They, Sheba has fled. He is surrounding himself in a city. They go and they besiege this city. And as they are attacking this city, a woman comes to him and he says, quit attacking the city. There's only one guy in here who you need. And we'll give him to you. And they cut Sheba's head off and they throw it over the wall of the city. And Joab is satisfied. And he takes the head of Sheba back to David. And there's once again peace and unity in the kingdom of Israel. So that's the the summary of what takes place in this narrative. Now, as we look at this narrative, I want to suggest to you, there there are two types of rebellion that is going on in this narrative. The first is the one which we see overtly. We have the rebellion of Sheba, who says, David is a bum. David is a man of of immorality. David does not have the the loyalty of the people. It was clear through the revolt of Absalom that we're not going to follow this David because because he's a bad guy. And so that is, is overt rebellion. And as we look at our fellowship to the Lord Jesus Christ, most of us, by the simple fact that we're here this morning, that we're gathered as a body of Christ, worshiping, are not guilty of the first type of rebellion. We are not overt enemies of God. We don't stand up on the pedestal and say there is no God. We don't claim to be atheists. We don't claim to be uh, uh, antagonistic toward Christianity. The simple fact that we're here together listening to, to some guy ramble on and on about the kingdom of David tells us that, you know what, we, at least by the words of our mouth, we claim to be a follower of Jesus. We are a, a overt confessing believer. There are those who are overt in their rebellion against Christianity. In fact, Psalm chapter 14 tells us the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. And there's no one who does good. There are those who make overt and very bombastic allegations and accusations against Christ and against Christianity. And we've seen this throughout history. Many of us work with these people. Many of us go to school with these people. Many of us are related to these people. And there are overt rebellious people who, who say they're, and, and, and they want to take academic stances. But I want to remind us what the text says is that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. That this is not a a logical, rational, intellectual discussion. That this is an issue of the heart. This is an issue of the heart. May I remind us that the burden of proof does not lie upon God to prove himself or his existence, but the burden of proof lies upon the atheist or the antagonist to disprove God. But I subject to us that most of us, especially in the Bible Belt, are not this type of rebel. 
most of us are not Sheba, but most of us resemble Joab. There is a second type of rebellion that is covert. Joab is loyal to a fault. Joab will follow David into hell wearing underwear doused with gasoline. There is... Joab is... He is a follower of David. He is loyal to David. And if anybody comes against David, as we see, he will do whatever he can to avenge David. He killed, he killed David's own son because he posed a threat to David. Joab is, is, he, he is a loyal follower of David, yet he is unwilling to submit himself to David. Do you see the rebellion in Joab? Joab was told by David, do no harm to Absalom. Put down the rebellion, do no harm to Absalom. Joab said, the king doesn't know what's good for him. I know what's better. I know what the king wants. I know what is going to be best for the king. And so I'm going to ignore the clear direction from my king. Oh, he's still my king. I follow him. I will follow him all the days of my life. I will will follow him to the ends of the earth. I just won't do what he says. After that rebellion, after, after failing to follow the commands of the king, he's demoted. The king said, you will no longer be the general of my army and I am going to demote you. And seeing that the king has played out these these ramifications for his rebellion, Joab says, well, that's unacceptable. I am not going to submit myself under the rule of this king. Oh, I'll follow him. I'll go to battle for him. And if anybody says that that there's another king in Israel, I'll cut his head off. I'll gut him like a fish. But I'm not going to do what he says. Most of us recognize overt rebellion of Sheba, but few of us see the Joab-type rebellion within ourselves. We say, but I'm a Christian. I go to church every Sunday. I even tithe. I even teach Sunday school. I even work at the fall festival. I even do X, Y, or Z. But the reality is, is that we fail to do what God has called us to do. We follow Him. We wear Christian t-shirts, we carry our Bible, we email devotions to our friends, we put Bible verses on our Facebook page. Oh, we're followers of Jesus, but whenever God gives us specific instruction through His Word, whenever God clearly reveals His will, whenever God, by His grace and by His providence, gives us directive through His Holy Spirit and through His revealed will in His Word of God, we say, yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to submit myself to the king because that that leaves no glory and honor for me. 
Matthew chapter 15. Jesus addresses this. In the book of Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. And if there was ever a group of people that were more Baptist in the New Testament than the Pharisees, I haven't met them yet. Matthew chapter 15, I want us to look at verses 1 through 9. Then some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands before they eat bread. Let me, let me contextualize this for you. Why do the followers of Jesus do things that we haven't always done before? Why do they do things in a way that's different than, than our parents did and our grandparents did? Why do they sing those songs that are so disrespectful? Why do they, why do they dress in such a manner that, 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 that shows no uh, reverence to the Lord? Why do, they, why do they wear hats in the sanctuary? Why do they do this? Why do they do that? Why do they, they, they show up and they, they act in such a way? Why is there... People smoking in the, in, the, in the parking lot. Why are there people who are doing things in a manner that we've never allowed before? Jesus answered them, verse 3. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped to, I'm sorry, have been helped by, has been given to God. So he is not to honor his father or mother, and thus you invalidate the word of God for your sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. Jesus charged the Pharisees. He said, you have taken the rules this rabbinical rule of man, and you have passed it off as doctrine from the Lord. You hypocrites! Are we not guilty of the same thing with our legalism, our self-righteousness, passing off the teachings of man and the precepts of man as that which equates to the holiness and righteousness of God? Rebellion that is overt and subversive within our own hearts is often the most difficult to recognize. Joab is successful at putting down the rebellion of Sheba but the rebellion within the kingdom of David is very much alive. And I submit to you, church, the greatest harm to the kingdom of God is not from the atheist outside. It's not from the Hindus. 
that try and destroy the church in India. It's not from the Buddhists who are trying to destroy the church in China. It's not from the Muslims in the Middle East who are trying to destroy the church in the Middle East. It's not the extreme terrorism from the extreme Muslims that are attacking Orthodox churches across this world. Because history tells me time and time again that God will sustain His church and that there will never be an enemy that will come in that will be able to destroy the church of God because it is His bride. The greatest threat to the church is not from the outside. It's not the Shebas. It's not the Absaloms. The greatest threat to the church is the Joabs. It's those who stand up under the guise of obedience, under the guise of holiness, under the guise of of teaching and training and raising up the church and they teach false doctrine and they pass off the precepts of man as the doctrines of God. And they convince themselves that they're doing God a favor, yet they are failing to submit to the revealed will of God. Church, God doesn't need us to do Him a favor. He needs us to live in such a way that demonstrates the love of Jesus and an obedience to His Word. As we end 2 Samuel chapter 20, to us, the kingdom of David seems fragile. You have a kingdom who has experienced two revolutions in a matter of three chapters. It seems very fragile. David will then pass his kingdom to his son, who will end up marrying 300 wives and having 700 concubines, who will align himself with foreign powers and foreign gods, and the kingdom will be divided. And after that, the kingdom will suffer wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And the kingdom will be in a state of fragility. It will be fragile. But I want to remind us, church, that the king, the kingdom is indeed fragile, but it stands. Nothing has changed. At any point in time, we look at the state of the church and it appears to be fragile. One generation away from extinction. But the king stands. The kingdom stands. Jesus is that son. We're told in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God will establish the kingdom of David and it will reign forever. And there will be a, a, a son, a heir from the line of David that will sit on the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. And whenever Jesus left glory, became a man, Jesus, that son of David, left glory, became a man, died on a Roman cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb, rose victorious over sin, death, and the grave on that third day. The Scripture tells us that God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that is above every name in Philippians chapter 2. And because of His obedience to the Lord, because of His submission to the King, 
Jesus was given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, both in heaven and earth and under the earth, and at the name of Jesus every tongue should confess that He is King, that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And His kingdom was established, and His kingdom will be established forever. So yes, church, the, king, the kingdom is fragile. But it stands. And it will stand forever. Our responsibility as citizens of this kingdom is to submit ourselves to the King. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that in this revolution, in this habitual humanity of revolution, disobedience, rebellion, that we see ourselves. We may not be Sheba, we may not be that, that overt rebel who says there is no God. We may not be that overt rebel who tries to subvert the kingdom of God, but in our heart, we find ourselves much like Joab. Our disobedience is in our failure to submit. Our disobedience, our rebellion, is in our failure to do what God has called us to do. If that's you this morning, Let me comfort you with the words of the Apostle John. He said, if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of any and all unrighteousness and cleanse us from our iniquity. The psalmist said, as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our sin from us. May this morning, maybe you need to come to this altar and repent from your rebellious heart. Maybe you need to grab someone with you. Don't leave this place today without doing business with the Lord. Maybe today you've been encouraged that even in the midst of the the fragile state of the church, that God's kingdom stands. It stands not on the rock of a a man, not on the rock of of a denomination, but on the rock of Christ Jesus. Whatever it is the Lord is speaking to your heart this morning, may you find yourself obedient. Maybe that God is calling you to be a part of what He's doing right here at Redeemer. Don't leave this place today without making a decision that God has called you to. Maybe today you need to give your life to Jesus. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to your people here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray.